I'm Richard, and welcome to Acid Torque's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 17th, 2014. Join us this week as we slip into the Bradbury building and find actress Dale Raoul lurking on a mezzanine in the mood to muse on April's poem noir-themed Lava Sunday Salon and the poem of a fellow salon presenter, Suzanne Lummis. We'll also visit with Brian Kaiser, Southern California's tile expert, to explore the symbolism of the custom Ernst Pachelder tiles in the lobby of the John Roebling Sons building in downtown LA's Arts District. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to Fifth and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir, Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown, The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So we did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 17th, 2014. This week, our guest will be actress Dale Raoul. She will be reading poems by Suzanne Lummis in the Bradbury Building in anticipation of our April Salon on the subject of poem noir. April, being the cruelest month, is National Poetry Month as well. We will also be joined by tile expert Brian Kaiser. Brian is going to bring us on home, as it were, from our introduction last week to the John A. Roebling Sons building with its Ernst Bachelder custom tile. Brian is going to go into depth about the iconography of this custom tile and the methodology of Bachelder, which sets him apart in the line of ceramic design in Southern California. Kim, I think this is a time where you tell people about our tip jar. 
That's true. There is a digital tip jar associated with this podcast. And if you like the show and would like to contribute to our Southern California ramblings, you can virtually throw a few shekels into that tip jar. We'd be grateful for it. You'll find a PayPal link there on the podcast page. Never obligatory. Always appreciated. Thanks for your support, listeners. Extraordinary prizes in ordinary places. How preserving everyday things can save people and the planet. Kim, that is the title of the lecture we went to just a few nights ago, given by Ned Kaufman. He's a preservationist out of New York City, uh, attached to Columbia University, deeply involved in the past with the Metropolitan Arts Society, which is the nonprofit which has done deep and fundamental work in preserving what is left of New York City. It was a great lecture. Do you want to say anything about it before I start talking about it? No, I'm going to let you start, and I'm sure I'll, I'll jump in. Okay, Kim. Well, this was a really good talk. Everyone should go buy his books. Um, Ned is really very intelligent. The point of the talk was quite simply the, the language we have to talk about preservation, the methodology we have is all wrong. Our notion of preservation of gems is flawed because preservation of gems makes ordinary places unimportant and it is these ordinary places which he correctly believes have the most value to communities. So the whole notion of the criteria for an historic cultural monument landmark application, the whole notion behind the criteria for what makes a national register district. These are all wrong. They're missing the point. And the real point, the real problem is that the EIRs that are produced, the environmental impact reports, which in the state of California under CEQA are really the the, the document by which buildings live and die, because this methodology is incorrect, the EIRs can never be written properly to do anything of, of any value to preserving communities. And that's it. It's It was truly a great talk. I was really honored to be there. He's he's a, he's a, really, he's a really great guy, and I look forward to working with him in the future. We, um, you know... Uh, Kim Weinford, Wyvernwood, the mayor has called for a independent peer review of Weinvernwood. He's asked for 15 group to finance it, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, Wyvernwood is the uh, Garden Court apartment complex in Boyle Heights. Just a lovely, lovely community, multi-block with jacaranda uh, trees and meandering lanes and a lot of interior green space. And uh, families have lived there for generations, and it's slated by uh, 15 Group, its its owner, out-of-state owner from Florida, to be mostly demolished and replaced with high-rise glass and steel mixed-use residential, uh, all part of this whole notion that, you know, downtown L.A. is going to spread east across the uh, 6th Street Bridge, which, you know, is neat, but the quality of displacement, which is something that Ned talked about in his talk at USC, the, the notion that when people are displaced from their long-term homes, it actually causes long-term trauma, multi-generational trauma. There have been studies on uh, the people who were displaced from Boston in the urban renewal of the 1960s. I don't know why nobody did a study like that um, in Bunker Hill. 
but of course we brought our friend Gordon Patterson, native of Bunker Hill, to the talk, and and he stood up at the end and talked about his own personal experience of being pushed out of his community and then having that community physically erased and what what that's done to him over the last fifty years of his life. It's it's um a really abusive use of redevelopment. It, it hurts a lot of people, and I don't know if it's the best use of that space. Um, Wyvernwood is a very, very interesting test study because in terms of the type of community it is, it, it's quite similar to Bunker Hill, not visually necessarily, but in terms of the demographic, and the people there are mobilizing, and they're using Web 2.0, and they're using a lot of really powerful tools for communication, getting their message across. And now the mayor is perhaps putting the brakes on this project. So it's very, very interesting to watch, and uh, we, we watch with great interest what happens at Wyvernwood. Uh, mayor Garcetti is not putting the brakes on anything. He's simply asked for a, a peer review. I don't think that the mayor... Uh, the mayor cannot vote in council, so uh, the mayor has only uh, advisory role. The term is uh, the term. I forgot the term. It's the term Lyndon Johnson used when he urinated on a man's leg. <laughs> I don't know what term that is. It's not veto, is it? No. no? Anyway, um, that's. Uh, the, the, the mayor can can simply give give an opinion, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll let it go on from there. Kim, I want to mention the article in Curbed last week. Uh, nice article about this pre-war state law that was passed as a prototype. The looking back, the the Batoon Act. Looking back, it's a prototype of a bid, hybrid bid in CRA, in which business. Prototype of a business improvement district CRA. You can see that developers, neighborhoods wanted uh, that, that municipalities were unable to raise bonds quickly enough for infrastructure work, and so the Matoon Act was created, and it caused all sorts of problems, just like the CRAs did. But it caused all sorts of problems within five years. The CRAs took at least twenty years before it, things really started to get out of hand. Interesting article and just good to know because, you know, this, the CRA didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of these long-standing needs in municipalities in California, and this this makes it very, very clear what happened. All right, Kim, um, this is an interesting note. Um, LA, par- L.A. Streets Parklet Program has begun. Uh, Valerie Watson is one of the is the spokesperson for that program. Had some email exchanges with her in addition to this, so it looks like uh, looks like for the next month or two, you can submit your application, and the city, the the LA People program, which is part of uh, the Department of Transportation, will will go through a very fast process of, of approval or rejection, fast process of review, at which point if you qualify, they have pre-existing parklets and exercise bike areas that, that will just get dropped into place at the location you've petitioned if you pass, and it's going to stay up for a year uh, until it's subject to review, and I, um, I think that's neat. Well, I mean, 
mean, it can be problematic in places. I, I don't like seeing the parklets on big urban streets. I think it's kind of dangerous and odd, but uh, certainly there, there are probably some places a little more off the beaten path where something like that might work and might create a little community space. But it's interesting to see the city streamlining it um, and I guess using some design guidelines. There's like specific furniture, vendors that have already been approved. I hope we don't see too many more of those polka dots, though. The Silver Lake polka dots are kind of ditzy. I'm, I'm going to submit a parklet proposal for St. Vincent's Court. Are you really? Can we have some sort of psychedelic light show instead of the, the polka dots? I'm, a, I'm going to submit a parklet proposal for St. Vincent's Court. You're, you're really going to do this, aren't you? No, I'm not. Okay, Kim, well, we've got uh, some events coming up. Um, I will, uh, I'm, I'm going to let you take the lead on this because your novel was just published and our salon this month, to a large degree, hinges on your novel. I will mention in passing that there is a speaker at this month's salon, this month's salon Thomas Sitton, who is not involved with the production of your book. He will be speaking. He'll be speaking about the, the ten most nefarious politicians in the city and the county of Los Angeles from about 1850 to 1950. And, Kim, I will let you take away the topic of your novel and the latter part of March's Lava Sunday Salon. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, I, I uh, am stepping out from behind the camera where I usually spend these salons videotaping. Richard, you'll videotape, won't you, dear? No. No? Oh, okay. Um, I'm stepping out from behind the camera to talk about The Kept Girl, my novel of 1929 L.A. starring the young Raymond Chandler, which I'm happy to report as of this recording is in the top 40 for historical mysteries on the Amazon Kindle store. Woo! Top 40. Um, the book came out of work that we were doing on the crime bus, first on the Wild Wild West Side tour of cults and child murder, and, and then it adapted itself to uh, your Raymond Chandler bus tour, Richard. And I just had all these wonderful narratives about this bizarre cult that victimized the nephew of Raymond Chandler's employer in the Dabney Oil Syndicate. And once I discovered that just two blocks away from there, there was a cop who quite likely is a model for Philip Marlowe, uh, this little novel came together and we launched our press, Esoteric Inc., and we were able to get the wonderful Paul Rogers, one of the best illustrators working today in a vintage style, to design a beautiful Art Deco cover. So Paul and I will be doing a joint talk. I'll be talking about the development of the story and how real true crimes of old L.A. were semi-fictionalized in The Kept Girl, and Paul's going to talk about his working methods and how he finds little fragments of old L.A., photographs them, takes them to his bat lair, and, and turns them into art that is both of our time and of the past. And I think we might even have some interesting surprises about the production of the book. I'm putting together a little slideshow, so please come. It's free. It'll be fun. And if you've been looking to get a signed copy of The Kept Girl, I can think of worse places to get one. Thanks, Kim. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce our interviews now, okay? okay. So, uh, Brian's going to be our second talk, so I'm going to introduce him first. I almost feel like Brian Kaiser needs no introduction, because he crops up a lot on this podcast, mostly because he's so terribly charming and intelligent. Brian is going to wrap up what is 
proven to be a two-part segment on the John A. Roebling Sons building, which is now home to Angel City Brewery. That's at 2nd and Alameda. The lobby, what is the, lo- the, the lobby which fronts on a diagonal the corner, the southeast corner of 2nd and Alameda, the lobby which is now, of course, the way the building is configured for the brewery, the back part of the building and not terribly accessible, but accessible. Uh, the lobby is filled with 1913 custom Bachelder tile about Johnny Roebling and Sons work, which was manufacturing wire cable. They built the Brooklyn Bridge amongst many other things. So last week, Brian gave an exhaustive discussion of the Roebling sons and father and their rise as giants, engineering giants in America. This week, he's going to finally get to the iconography. Having digested the history, we now can get into the iconography that Bachelder was given by the employees to create these custom tiles for the lobby. And then he will, of course, get into Bachelder as this giant in Southern California ceramic design and the methods by which he earned this place. So it'll be it'll be very interesting, and it's particularly important because at at my specific request, we we he really spends the last part of the interview explicitly going through all the mistakes he made about grasping and understanding just exactly Bachelder and Bachelder's methods and why he's so different from everyone else and his place and and really understanding his place and significance and role in the larger scheme of ceramic design in Southern California. So this is this is going to be a very good interview, which is going to wrap up the podcast. We're going to start the interviews with the actress Dale Raul. Dale is a complete and utter genius. We've interviewed her in the Bradbury building, reciting some po- a single poem by Suzanne Lummis, who is Charles Fletcher Lummis' granddaughter and also a very gifted poet locally, and will be involved with Dale in putting on the Poem Noir Lava Sunday Salon in April, April being National Poetry Month and the cruelest month as well. Dale is an actress. Dale stars in a series which she just told me is wrapping up, True Blood. I guess she plays a vampire. I, no, she doesn't play a vampire. But she's a mom. She's a mom. I guess she's a mom of a vampire. I don't watch... No, I don't. But she's great. And that show's wrapping up after seven seasons. And she's just uh, gotten put into another show that Stephen King is developing called Under the Dome. And I'm going to go ahead and just admit that I have absolutely no idea what that show is about. But Stephen King is is writing it and is involved as at the executive producer level, so obviously it's going to be incredibly successful and, and, and very together. And that's good for Dale because we want Dale working and busy and happy for a very long time. She's one of my favorite people. So let's, without further ado, get ready for a discourse on the true nature of film noir and poem noir with Dale Raoul.
cocktail. I'm here with you. We're, we're in the Bradbury building. It's beautiful. I want you're you're going to be uh, reading next month for the April Lava Sunday Salon. It's part of the Poem Noir event. Uh, it's it's National Poetry Month, so we're gonna we're gonna read some poems. I want you before we get into all of that to properly introduce yourself. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Uh, my name is Dale Rowell, and I come to the Sunday Salon from the perspective of an actress. I have read uh, many poems before for Suzanne Lemus, who's a wonderful Los Angeles poet. And um, anyway, I um, work on two television shows, one called True Blood, which is a um, seven-series, a seven-year uh, show on HBO about vampires. Yes. And then um, recently I've been on a show called Under the Dome, which is um, a CBS series that Stephen King has, has written from his book called Under the Dome. And we'll start shooting that in March. Fantastic. Congratulations. Good, 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 good job. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm very fortunate. Sad to say True Blood is, is winding up its last season this year, but it's been a great ride. And, you know, the vampires can't get any older because once you're made a vampire, you have to stay that age. So there's that. I I look forward to the future with you. <laughs> let's um let's uh, you you have a poem. I do. You have a poem. Um, you're going to read a poem by Suzanne Lummis, and the theme it's in the the vein of poem noir. We're in the Bradbury, which is a very noir space. Uh, Joseph Losey's M. Blake, my least. Uh, this is, this is a, uh, the 19th century Los Angeles strangely is connected with crime and vice in the underworld, which I find very interesting. And why don't you just start by reading this poem from Suzanne? And, and give, it, give us the title before we get started. It is called, fittingly, Femme Fatale. And uh, this is definitely a poem in the noir genre because it takes place, you know, in, in the dark. And um, there's crime, there's love, there's, you know, uh, badness. So here we go. It's a crime story she's in. Betrayal and larceny. Few clues. Someone stole what she lived for. Made off like a thief in the night or high noon. What shall she do? this. Slide a heel on each foot and set out, snapping at each step. The man she loves smiles from the drugstore's rack of magazines, just in. Looks like he's wrapped his movie, dropped his wife on a Frisian island, and is flying his girlfriend to Saint-Tropez. The men who love her finger coins in the stale linings of their front pockets and whimper, what's your name? The job she wanted went to the man who tells the truth from one side of his mouth, lies from the other, a bilingual. The job she got lets her answer the questioning phone all day. Her disappointment has appetite, gravity. Fall in, you'll be crunched and stretched thin as fettuccine. Watch out for her, this woman. There is more than one. That woman with you, for instance, checking herself in the mirror to see where she stands. She's innocent so far, but someone will disappoint her. Even now, you're beginning to. Even now, you're in danger. 
That was fantastic. <laughs> Suzanne, um, I, I, I meant to introduce her more properly. Of course, go to the salon, you'll know all about her. Suzanne is Charles Fletcher Lummis' granddaughter, the man, one, of, one, of the, one of the men who invented Southern California as we know it, and she is, um, lives up to the name, <laughs> the reputation of this, this giant. I want to just, um, I want you to talk about this building we're in. It's gorgeous. Uh, poem, poem noir is very much steeped in the notion of cinema, of, of, of cinema, a cinema which has a, a verse, uh, someone just told me this, I like this, of cinema which has a verisimilitude that the world had not seen since the early silence Ooh, in Los Lovely, lovely, yeah. yes. So, I hope your audience also, when I was reading, could hear the sirens going by. Yes. Now, I don't know if they would have heard that in 1898, but it certainly adds to the darkness and the mystery of the poem. And I think you have chosen, Richard, the perfect setting for these poems because, as you say, it evokes a time that we still love and still are fascinated by. This building, the Bradbury Building, was built in 1898 and is one of the very few left examples of this architecture in Los Angeles. And we've all seen the movies that this building, you know, that, that they've used this building for. And just everywhere you look uh, is a thing of beauty, a detail that you might have missed on first glance. I mean, all the steps are marble, the beautiful railings, the balconies, the um, the elevator. Your wife was just telling me a fascinating story about the elevator, about when there was a fire at the top of the building and this this lovely elevator operator woman, Minnie Epp, we should not forget her name because she is a heroine of Los Angeles. And she took the uh, firefighters up and down in the elevator and saved the building. So there's all kinds of history here. As you told me earlier, there are a lot of police offices here, which actually kind of adds to the coolness, <laughs> I would say. Also, you know, this building is very near the Grand Central Market, which has a lot of history. And it's just wonderful that it's a famous building so that nothing can ever happen to it because it is our heritage. And um, it just being in these halls evokes all kinds of, you know, it, it just makes you think of all the movies you've seen as a kid. And now to have these poems read here is cool. Per perfect. And I will just add one of the last films to be shot here, Blade Runner. Mm. Uh, I think they got such an inexpensive permit to film here because the building had already been condemned by the fire by the city fire marshal and it was just the building was literally about to be torn down when another person who saved the building Ira Yellen stepped in after the filming of Blade Runner and said no I'm going to buy this and with the help of the city saved this building so this Minnie Epp and Ira Yellen, but Ira Yellen kind of has, Ira Yellen has a plaque outside, so I'm yeah. not worried about him. <laughs> we need a plaque for Minnie Epp. You and I are going to call Adele. We're, yeah. we're going to call Adele, and we're going to talk to her. If you say so, Richard. <laughs> do you want to uh, bring us home with this other poem? Yes. <clears throat> this is by C.C. Perry, and... Um, oh. CC will also, sorry, I'm glad I caught you before you started. CC will also be reading at the, the Lava Salon, so good, good choice. Right, that's what I thought. This one uh, is also uh, kind of troublesome and is called Trouble Down the Road. At the flat top grill, he was all business, 
flung raw eggs dead center into the corned beef hash like a strapping southpaw. In the alley, with me, he was all ideas. Said he'd be leaving soon, had a shot back east, a tryout for the big leagues. Said his sister would loan him a Buick convertible, and he'd fill it with malt beer and tuna. All he needed was a woman to hold his cat while he drove. I like animals, I told him. Then I dropped my cigarette into the dusty clay, grounded out slow, felt the road under my foot. Thank you. That was absolutely fantastic. I don't think there's anything else to say except to thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Richard, and we look forward to the salon in April. My name is John Bunton. I'm here in Beverly Hills, and you are listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Brian, we're, uh, we're here with you at the Roebling Building at 2nd and Alameda. It's a 1913 building. This is the distribution center for, this was the distribution center for John A. Roebling's son's company. It's now Angel City Brewery. Um, we're in the lobby. Uh, we're here today. You were just giving a talk about the Ernst Bachelder custom tile. So I'd love it if you could introduce yourself and... Maybe we'll just walk over to one of these tiles and you can talk about what's going on here. Okay. Yeah. Either it's, um, this is Brian Kaiser again. I always do my little reprieve, which is I own the home of, I can do this in my sleep now, I hope at any rate. <laughs> I, own the, I own the home of Rufus Keeler, who was the founder of the Malibu Potteries. And uh, that sort of led me on a track of studying his tile and what he did and has now branched off into uh, identifying and trying to help people with all sorts of tile questions and identification and salvage. And that has brought us here today to the John A. Rubling, Rubling's Sons uh, building, built in 1932 by Hudson and, and uh, Munsell. This is a distribution center. Some people have mistaken this for a, uh, a factory, but it was not. They had 15 or 16 distribution centers all across the United States because they were the world's greatest manufacturers of steel, wire, rope, or cable used for suspension bridges and a lot of other things. So why this has a great connection Number one, we have a wonderful connection there, and of course, to American history and engineering and the Brooklyn Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge and um, uh, Charles Lindbergh's plane, you know, the Spirit of St. Louis, et cetera, et cetera. But here in the lobby, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, very charming little lobby that is full of really amazing custom-made, which I really have to emphasize because except for the Dutch chocolate shop, I'm really hard-pressed to be aware of very much really custom-made Batchelder tile. If you commissioned Batchelder to make anything, almost always he would, if you had your permission, <clears throat> it would go on the catalog once he made it for you. Because once you've gone to the, that effort, you have your modeler has to come in, your sculptor has to come in, you have to have an image, a picture, something to work from. The modeler has to do the, the first, uh, sometimes they worked in wood initially, sometimes that would be turned into a mold of plaster of Paris, and at various points, you're working with reverse, depending on how far you go, there are various you know, reverse uh, images. But the fact is, the point is, once you have a mold, 
Obviously, the more you make, you know, look at your investment. Now we can make 500, we can make 10,000, and everyone is cheaper, cheaper, cheaper because the initial investment has been made. What's astounding here is that we've got uh, a few cases where maybe a tile repeats here in this room, the design repeats, maybe there's two of them, maybe there's three. I haven't gone around to count, but the point being, except for the, there, there was a water fountain at one point, where the water fountain is, those are standard tiles. They come out of the, the catalog. But everything else here is, is custom-made. Do, do you want to walk over to one tile and let's talk about one? Why don't we, why don't we do the first factory? Because I, I love this because I, I couldn't quite figure this out until I got in touch with the Roebling Museum. Okay, hold, 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 hold on a second. So let's, let's get this straight. So we're, we're in the lobby and we're looking at, a, at an Ertzpachelder tile, Ernstpachelder. He didn't use glaze, no. right? Why, why, don't, why don't we start with that? Why don't we just start with what we're looking at just as a ceramic surface? Um, yeah, that's the first thing. The style in which Batchelder made tile was called Engobe, E-N-G-O-B-E. And sort of the simplest explanation of that is Engobe tile is not glazed. It is a very simple bisque body of the tile, the clay, which has been fired, but there is no glaze, which then, colored glaze, which then goes over, over top of that. The only color you get with Batchelder tile is that before it would go into the kills, you'd have what they call the, the greenware when it's still damp, and they would take a colored slip, what they called a slip, of various colors and sort of paint that in the background, wipe the excess off the front. He wanted, he wanted to a definition or a delineation of color, but he wanted it in the recesses as opposed on the top. And that's kind of the reverse of other styles, as it were. But that's, that's what the Ngobe is. So it was very appropriate. This is 1913. So the Ngobe tile was much more appropriate to the style of mission style and arts and crafts. They really weren't building very much Spanish, quote unquote, Spanish colonial in architecture. We, we didn't get the influence of that <clears throat> and the Spanish tiles and Moorish tiles, et cetera, et cetera, until after World War I, really, where, when that exploded at any rate. So he's really displaying, I mean, he's creating a design which is appropriate to the time, to the architecture and the style and the time in which he started, which was 1910. And this is only a few years, which is amazing. 1910 started in his backyard making tile, and this is three years after that. So within three years, he's getting a commission from the Roebling Company to create these a series of these very unique, uh, one-of-a-kind uh, tiles. So that's the that's the style in which they uh, they were uh, they were made, and it, it's called and it's called in Gobe. So we're we're looking at this tile. This looks like a, a house, but obviously right. on closer inspection and research, it's not. And why don't, you, why, why don't we start yeah. with that? Yeah, this is a nice. Let me look really quickly. This is an eight by eight, which is a nice little six by six is kind of as big as you normally get. So to begin with, it's a very nice sized tile. It's an eight by eight. It's a little oversized, and it's a very charming scene of what I originally thought was like a little country farmhouse, which is exactly what it looks like when we think of a factory. You know. We think of a factory, right, you know, with huge smokestacks, you know, bulging and railroad lines and stuff like that. And in one corner, in the lower left-hand corner, it says 1848. And, you know, in terms of research, I mean, to me, this is fun. With, when you're trying to figure something out, you know, your mind goes different ways. I knew that they were German, and I didn't know when they came here. You know, the first day I came here, I didn't know when they came. 1848 is the year of a series of great labor revolutions yeah. all over Europe, but, yeah. but, but all the German states all of the, the people, the peasants and the workers and the common man rose up. 
So there was a great revolt. There was a kind of a civil war, but it was an odd kind of a, it's a little difficult to explain. It's not, not like ours or the French Revolution, but there was a kind of, it's almost like striking more than making war, 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 you know. They tried to, like, shut down businesses and factories and things like that. So 1848 to 1849, there was a lot of unrest through all the German states, and certainly Prussia. And I was trying to figure out because my family came in 52. They came in 52 because 49, by 49 and 50, the revolutions were over. They had simply failed. There wasn't a lot of bloodshed. Not only was it very peculiar, but the king of Prussia... The common people went to Frankfurt and convened a parliament. And the Prussian army marched in, marched in and occupied the city, but did not, they did nothing to, to, to dissolve the parliament. And the king of Prussia actually went there one day and said, can I give a speech? I'd like to give a speech if I could. And he went, okay. And he said, I'm still the king. I want to make you know I'm still the king. But he said, what's, what's wrong, guys? You know, what, what are you unhappy about? You know, life is tough out there. What's happening? You know, so all sorts of... Odd things are going on, and everybody that leaves after 48, there's a huge wave of, of Germans for the next five years or so, and that's when my family left in 51, and they're called Achtunvierzigers because of 48, because, right. because it was the 1848. Well, so I'm sitting here going, you know, and uh, that digression is, goes to the point of saying I was wrong because he left in, in 18, you know, in 1831. But anyhow, this is part of, you, know, you look at something and you try to hook into something that you know. Turns out, thank God, after, this is what my brain is going through, this kinds of stuff, you know. Thank God I can touch with the Roebling Museum in Trenton, in Trenton uh, New Jersey. And what they tell me is this is the first factory and in one of the nicest uh, books and maybe I'll get you the title afterwards, but there's a very, very nice book by Clifford Zink. Yeah, by Clifford Zink. You can get it on Amazon. And in the archives, they don't have a picture of this building. They have a line drawing by John Roebling's nephew did a line drawing. This is the first factory in, um, why do I, it's not Teaneck, it's Trenton. Isn't that right? I think I, if, if, I, if I've done that before, it's, it's Trenton. Trenton? Yeah, okay, Trenton. <clears throat> I'm trying to do this. Anyway, so um, he was still in Sachsenburg when he sent a carpenter. He had a wonderful carpenter that remained very, very close to the family forever. Never, he's like a company man right to the end. His name was Swan. He sends Swan from Sachsenburg, Pennsylvania, and says, build me my first four buildings that look like this. The first building was to live in because he had to have workers. He had to have some workers to start the business. Second building, 60 feet long, to make the wire and then two other buildings for various other, whatever you needed, you, yeah, whatever supplies or whatever you, whatever you needed, you know. But this is the beginning. This little tile represents Ernst Batchelder's because they, they told me, the archivist tells me from uh, the Roebling Museum, there is no picture of it, but they have the line drawing. So they would have had to send a picture of the line drawing to Ernst Batchelder to recreate as the tile, and then obviously put the date 1848, which is when they built the first, the first factory. Uh, so this one in particular begins to, you know, show you the beginnings of the kind of formal, formal uh, building of the, uh, of the pottery. So let me, let, me, let me ask you this. So the museum has no real knowledge of this lobby. No, I was really surprised by that because I was here after you, you know, you folks told me about it. And I came down here and I spoke with Emily. <clears throat> and I, didn't, I couldn't quite get a sense of how much everybody had talked to each other, you know. And I thought they'd gotten, and I do think they'd gotten some information from 
Roebling. But oddly enough, I guess they didn't connect. They wanted the history of the building, right? And they didn't think about the folks here weren't thinking about this tile. But when I came here, I realized the tile has to do with the history very, very, very much. This is the history of the company. This is the uses of the company, you know, the first, you know, the first factory here, et cetera, et cetera. So when I got a hold of the curators, I had some back there, I had some questions as well, and all of a sudden I realized they didn't know what I was talking about. And so finally one point I wrote back and, and I just said, are you, are you familiar with the Batchelder tiles, yada, yada, yada? And they said, no. They said, no one has told me about any tiles. We're not, we're not aware of that. So they had no pictures. They didn't know this tile was here. They didn't know anything about it. So I took pictures of everything and sent it to the Roebling Museum. And especially because these are not just pretty tiles. They're not just decorative. This is the company. This is all these uses, all these practical uses of the company. They, I don't think they, or at least the people I got a hold of, were not aware that the handrail is, you know, this, I mean, there it is. You know, there's what they made in 1913. You know, there it is. So they were very, very excited to learn about um, uh, the tile and uh, the lobby and the handrailing and the fact that, uh, I mean, number one, it's basically in good as it is, thank God, wonderful condition, wonderful condition, you know. The field tile's been painted, but this can, can be taken off, no big deal, will not harm the tile, you know, whatsoever. Um, so what we're trying to do is, uh, at least at this point, the Roebling Museum is not aware that this tile was used anywhere else. We might be surprised, but they do not, they're not aware of it at any rate, because they, they never even saw this until now, you know. So you, you don't think there's any chance this tile might have been used in other distribution centers? I... You see, I, I do think so because, again, it's the cost factor. Once the molds were created, and these were made for, I mean, I, I know the employees paid for it, but I mean, obviously, these were made for this company. So how could you have a huge industry, a huge industry in, um, in New Jersey, all the Roebling homes, which, of course, were, you know, magnificent, you know, the tile could have been installed there anyway, and maybe 14 or 15 distribution centers across the United States. Now you've got a tile maker who's created tile for you. You know, we've made this tile for your company. So it would be, you know, tile is incredibly easily shipped, obviously, once it's uh, been manufactured. So I, I, just, I just find it hard to believe that this would have been so expensive to only use here. So I'm going to, but the other thing is, they do not know, they don't even know if the warehouses in San Francisco and Seattle still exist. So he sent me a list, um, uh, the curator sent me a list of, um, a handbook from 1947 with all the addresses. So we'll try, one way or the other, we'll try to follow up. Road trip. Yeah, well, or I think I'm going to be calling some people that live in other cities and saying, you know, Harry, could you go over there and just take a look for me, please? Uh, but I, it just seems to me it would have been used other places. But I don't know. I mean, this was a this the the company was important enough, and, and if the employees could afford it, this is what they did. But why would they not have used these tiles in other in other offices? Okay, well, you'll you'll, you'll keep us posted. Yeah, so we'll see. Um, I'm wondering, I want you to tell us something about Ernst Bachelder. Just to wrap up, I want you to tell us something about Ernst Bachelder's technique that m people may not know. People probably know Bachelder for their friends have fireplaces. They have a friend in Highland Park with this great fireplace and it's Bachelder. But tell us something about Bachelder that people might not know that's really, that, that you think is really important. Well, actually, the most important thing, and I know I go over this over and over and over again, but to some degree, 
I, I guess I cannot do it enough, you know, because I used to be very confused about this, and that's the very simple phrase that Batchelder's tile or Ngobe tile is not glazed. People just get it into their mind for various reasons, because normally, normally a tile is glazed. The, the, the tile we see from Malibu and Calco, yes, that's correct, it is glazed. And people don't quite understand the, you know, I try to describe as well as, well as I can, but it's kind of funny how I have trouble getting through, and I didn't understand for a long time what the real distinction was. Uh, so that's, that's kind of number one, it's really number one. It is simply not glazed tile. It is the bisque tile, it's just an open, um, open organic uh, clay, you know, fired clay with no, uh, the glaze is, is glass, you might as well say glass when you say glaze. The, so the glass is, a, is, is like liquid glass that you're pouring on top of something and then putting it in the kills and firing it. And now you've got this. The glaze is totally separate from the body of the tile. These are two totally you know, separate things. So if you get everything fired at the same, at the right temperature and the right rate and everything else, the glaze then, the glass, fuses. It must fuse. If it's a good tile, it'll fuse with the body, the bisque body of the tile. With an gobe tile, there is no glaze. There, it is one, you know, that, that tile, what you see is what you get, you know. You know, from from top to bottom, it is simply a bisque um, a bisque tile. The other place you get a lot of confusion in the Dutch chocolate shop is the best example, which of course is since Ngobe tile is not glazed, you you in some uses you have to uh, seal it. Or in those days, they had to seal it to protect it from soot from a fireplace, or if you're in a cafeteria or a restaurant, people with dirty hands, you know, uh, kitchen smoke from the kitchen, the restaurant, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they very often uh, put shellac. That's what they had, shellac or lacquer. Usually it was shellac. But anybody who knows has seen furniture, antique furniture, late 1900s or late 1800s, early 1900s. Shellac either goes really yellow really ugly yellow, almost amber, or it goes really dark brown, depending on what they put in it. And, you know, they're using very natural materials, very organic materials uh, in those days. So uh, so a lot of people are confused because they'll see the Dutch chocolate shop, they'll see a fireplace that they think it looks glazed. It does look glazed, but it's not glass. It's not a glaze. It's shellac. It's, it's a shellac finish, which has been painted over top of it. And that can be removed without any particular difficulty and hasn't harmed the, you know, hasn't harmed the tile any, at any rate. And, and I do kind of go, uh, and I guess that's the major thing I go over and over and over again because, um, and nobody should feel bad because, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the techniques and things that people would tell me about or I would read about years ago when I started this, uh, I started out just, I was interested in identification and history, right? Making tile... Whole different thing. That's a whole different okay, thing. We're, yeah, we're, we're, that's another episode. No, I'm not going to do that. No, no. I, well, no, but I'm, I'm just saying that I, I, I didn't, people would say like in Gobi to me like 26 years ago, hey, this is meaningless. I mean, meaningless to me, you know? And it took me years and years and years. I actually had to go to some friends' potteries and watch some tile being made before the real reality of what these differences were, um, um, with what they were, that's all they were. So, so yes, I repeated a lot, but it took a lot of repetition with me to understand um, some of the different some of the different techniques. Perfect, we did it. I love it. Okay. You, th- thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, it's the ukulele. You're listening to "You Can't Eat the Sunshine."
And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast for the week of March 17th, 2014. Our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, this week featured actress Dale Raoul. She was reading a Suzanne Lummis poem in the theme of poem noir in the most noir building I know, the Bradbury building, all of this in anticipation of April's Lava Sunday Salon on poem noir. April being the cruelest month. We also had an interview wrapping up our two-part focus on the John A. Roebling Sons building at 2nd and Alameda with its custom tile work by tile giant Ernst Bachelder. Brian went through an exhaustive discourse on the iconography Bachelder was given by the employees for the tile program and also a really fantastic breakdown of Bachelder's methods and working styles, which really put him in a very special place in the lineage of Southern California ceramic tile design, of which he should know plenty of because he lives in Rufus Keeler's house in Southgate. So that was that was the show. I hope everyone liked it. Kim, if people want to give us feedback, and by that I, I mean want to let us know that they liked it, really. How how do they do that? Well, of course, you can send us an email. You can at the sunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at www.esoteric.com. You can join us on an esoteric bus adventure or come to one of the lava events, uh, free or some of them are paid. If uh, Richard Shave or myself, Kim Cooper, are the host, you'll find us there. We're, we're not at every lava event. There's other lava visionaries who post happenings on the calendar, but if it's a Sunday salon or a crime lab, we'll be there. And uh, you can also, of course, if you're so inclined, review the show on iTunes. But I, I sort of hesitate to remind you of that because... No, everyone should review the show on iTunes because someone left a review that said they like to fantasize about us having sex while we record the podcast. And that's like the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. So keep up the good work, okay? Give us lots of stars and keep on thinking that. you it, Thoughts have wings. Okay, so so we're done with the section on feedback and we're now going to just take us home and talk about upcoming bus tours. Kim, I'm going to do the first three. Mm-hmm. You're going to do the last three. I'm going to take a deep breath. Breathe. Okay. This coming weekend, Saturday, it is Weird West Adams. This is a tour about racial covenants, murder, kidnapping, poisonings, all the bootleggers, all the things you can possibly imagine about Los Angeles from about 1890 till about 1940. The, the, the torque extends beyond those barriers, but that's really the sweet spot of, of the crimes as always. This is a great tour. West Adams consists of about 12 different neighborhoods developed at different times between the late 1890s and the mid-1920s. We're going to go through a number of them. We're certainly going to do our best if we don't go through the neighborhood, at least to point it out as we speed along Washington Boulevard and Point East as we pass it. It's a it's a great tour. Get on the bus. The next week we have that's right. It's my Charles Bukowski tour. It's the twenty ninth of March. It is twenty days after the twentieth anniversary of his death. 
it is a great tour. It is a tour about the true nature of poetry in the modern age, and by that I mean it answers a series of challenges which have been in existence for the last 500 years. And by answers, I mean Charles Bukowski answers these challenges. It's a tour about his life, his anonymous life downtown, his spectacularly popular, famous celebrity life in East Hollywood and and everything in between. And I truly, genuinely hope you get on the bus. It'll be a lot of fun. April, we, April the cruelest month of April, starts off with the cruelest tour, and that is my wife's The Real Black Dahlia. This is a tour about Elizabeth Short, better known to the world as The Black Dahlia. It disappeared January 9, 1947, by a Corpse, discovered January 15, 1947, in Park. Exsanguinated, mutilated, great deal of mutilation, post-mortem. This is a tour not about who did it, because we don't know, and I'm not sure we ever will, but who she was, and, and what was this world she lived in that was bursting at the seams, this post-war Los Angeles. And most importantly, it is a tour about why you should care about her unsolved murder, because it shows us really the infrastructure of Los Angeles going into the modern age, an infrastructure which still exists today, and an infrastructure which was called in question even back then, and an infrastructure which really has not changed that much since then. So all all the questions that we raise are still perfectly valid ones as we sit here and note that the sheriff of the county of Los Angeles resigned about three months ago. Kim, I'm going to let you bring us home with the last three. Happy to. Um, we're going to have a couple of weeks off, and then on April 26th, we'll be doing The Birth of Noir, a tour about the writer James M. Kane and film noir, and how it evolved out of some of the novels that Kane wrote and developed through the cinema of Hollywood films like Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice and a little bit of Mildred Pierce in there as we head up into Glendale. It's a really fun romp, and we get to talk a little about one of my favorite things, the development of cemeteries in Southern California. Speaking of which, the following day at that Lava Sunday Salon, in addition to the Poem Noir presentations, our dear friend Nathan Marsak, and fellow historian of Old Bunker Hill, is going to be coming to the salon and presenting on his topic of long-term research, cemetery architecture, specifically mausoleum architecture in Southern California. And I know he's got some very special surprises in that slideshow. So if you you like the macabre and beautiful architecture, you'll want to come to that. On May 3rd, we give our rather occasional and, and, and truly deranged San Gabriel Valley Crime Bus Tour Blood and Dumplings. Yes, we will be having a dumpling picnic in Monster Park. And if that isn't attractive enough... I promise you, the cases on this tour are completely unhinged. I should know, because I wrote it. On May 17th, it'll be Raymond Chandler's L.A., one of our literary tours, and of course, source material for my novel, The Kept Girls, where I'll talk a little bit about the real-life cult that unfolded in Chandler's offices in um, the late 1920s. And then May 31st, it's Eastside Babylon, also an unhinged crime tour that just happens to run a little bit further south of Blood and Dumplings. And there'll be no dumplings on that tour, but there will be the story of the radio shop murders, which still chills my blood, and I, and I hope it'll chill yours, too. They're milk and cookies. Milk and cookies? Yeah, we're going to go to Brogier's in Montebello, opposite the old brickyard. What is Brogier's? Brogier's is a really awesome dairy. And they probably make the best chocolate milk I've ever had. And you can have some on the bus.
I think we even buy some for people to have. So if yeah, well, I mean, we. I think I think we stop after th- if we if people drink three quarts, we stop buying it at that point. And just well, yeah, I don't just, want to encourage uh, yeah, I, I don't want uh, yeah. We still have to get back on the freeway. Well, yeah, we have to. Ill, well, yeah, but um, yeah, we 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 definitely um, we we if yeah. So there we go. We've we've done it. We've. Uh, I don't hope we haven't chastised too many people in the process. So again, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you. You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, Midoriya, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Herman between. Goldmine